Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Rob Hansen, co-founder and CEO of Monolith Materials. Monolith Materials is a next-generation chemical company which uses a proprietary process to convert natural gas to carbon black in a cost-competitive and environmentally advantaged manner. Their process also produces hydrogen tail gas, which is a valuable co-product that can be sold into the power generation or industrial gas markets. Monolith is backed by Azimuth Capital Management. Warburg Pincus, and Cornell Capital, three of the most widely respected private equity firms in North America. I was excited for this one because Rob is an interesting entrepreneur. He came from the solar world and was looking to maximize his impact on climate change by finding opportunities that were both highly profitable and that could have a big impact without needing reliance on external policy. He landed on this opportunity in carbon black and has a solution that can reduce emissions by as much as 90% from the traditional processes. He's also raised hundreds of millions of dollars in financing, but completely bypassed traditional venture capital. And he was based in Silicon Valley when founding the company, but has now picked up and moved his entire family to Lincoln, Nebraska. We have a great discussion in this episode about climate change, about what they're doing at Monolith Materials and about hard tech innovation in general. We also talk about the most important solutions in the climate fight. Rob Hansen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So there's a bit of a cue in terms of when these are recorded versus when they're published. So by the time this goes out, it won't be New Year's Eve anymore, but this is my very last thing that I'm doing in 2019. So that's a big deal. Well, you proved you're a hard worker because you scheduled it at 4 p.m. on New Year's Eve. So it's exciting. It's been a good decade. Been looking forward to the 2020s. So what time is it in Nebraska right now? Right now it's two o'clock in Nebraska. Okay. So an hour. So you're, you've got one foot out the door as well. So we'll, <laughs> we'll make this the crowning event of all of 2019 is the My Climate Journey podcast for Monolith. Sounds good. Well, why don't we just take it from the top? What is Monolith Materials? Monolith is a energy technology company. We're focused on the chemical sector. And we make two chemicals. We make a chemical called carbon black, which I can talk in great detail about. And then we also make hydrogen, which is one of the fundamental building blocks of a lot of other chemicals like ammonia, methanol, and has a a big market throughout the world. So we do it and we have special technology that allows us to make these two chemicals from natural gas in a much better environmental way, as well as cost competitively. Uh Uh-huh. And how did all this come about? Because, I mean, you... Just from doing prep, you grew up in the solar industry, right? That's right. Yeah. So why don't we kind of go back there? Because really the seeds of this company were were sown when I was in solar. And so I came out of grad school in 2007 and it was right in the middle of kind of clean tech 1.0 boom. And I came out with two job offers. I had a job offer from a solar company called Ostra and it was backed by Kleiner and Kosla and kind of pretty exciting company, small at the time. And then I had a job offer from a little tiny electric car startup called Tesla. And I chose the solar company. So probably not the best financial decision of my life, but a really great experience at Ostra. And so there we built the technology. Uh, we built a number of projects. 
And we actually got an exit, which was fairly rare in that industry. We sold the company to Arriva, which is the biggest nuclear company in the world, in 2010. And then I spent a couple of years at Arriva, and Arriva had a pretty cool strategy. So they wanted to be the number one provider of technology for CO2-free electricity. And they obviously have deep roots on the nuclear side from a baseload perspective. But then they're making a big play into renewables. So they bought us in solar, they bought a couple of wind companies, they bought a biomass company, and they bought a storage company. And really, we're going after this portfolio strategy. And so I got to spend a couple of years there getting a lot of exposure beyond just renewables, but I'd say generally to the electricity sector with a CO2-free angle on it. But then eventually... Well, quick aside before you go on. So after coming in through a solar company to a nuclear company, where did that leave you in terms of thinking about nuclear and the energy portfolio going forward? Yeah, nuclear is a really interesting one. Obviously has some great attributes in its base load capacity, as well as its essentially zero emissions of greenhouse gases. The challenge, and this is the challenge that Riva has really lived through over the past decade, is building new plants is very expensive. And so while I was at Ariva, they were doing a number of projects. They were building uh, two of their uh, new, they're called EPR reactors, one in Finland, one in France, and then they're doing a couple in China as well. And not surprisingly, those projects went way over budget, way over schedule. And so nuclear is an interesting, while it's got these great aspects on one side, the other side, and, and that's the capital cost and just length to deploy the technology is quite challenging. So that's kind of where I'm at on nuclear is very interesting, but I think it's got a lot of challenges as well. Okay. Well, we could spend a whole episode on that, but that's not why we're here. So why don't you keep going with the story? So you're at Arriva, you spent a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I spent a couple of years, lots of good experience. But for me and one of my longtime colleagues, Pete Johnson, who we spent time together at Oster and then Arriva, for us, we both kind of got the itch to do something entrepreneurial. Arriva is a 65,000 employee company all over the world. We wanted to do something kind of from the ground up. And so what's interesting about our journey is we left and we didn't have an idea. We didn't have technology. It wasn't two guys with a pitch deck. It was just two guys with a blank piece of paper. And so we then had our own kind of climate journey, not in public like yours, but in private, where for six months, we just scoured kind of the world and talked to as many people as we could trying to figure out what we were going to do next. And we really had three key criteria that we were thinking about. We wanted to build a business in this space, and it had to be, number one, economically standalone. So it couldn't rely on external incentives, things that are subject, I would say, to more volatility, but it had to truly be competitive against the existing industry. Number two, it had to be environmentally transformative. That's where our passion is, and it was just critical to us that it had that aspect as well. And then the third was that it had to be technology enabled. If it just had the first two, but not a technology angle, we really didn't have a place in it as tech entrepreneurs. And so we needed that technology to really be the reason that we would be able to do it. And then ultimately the long-term moat that gave us our durable competitive advantage. A certain kind of technology in terms of that criteria, or was it just any kind? And we were pretty broad. I would say generally it's kind of in the hard tech space that we were looking so we're both mechanical engineers. I was systems. He was more machine design. But we looked at everything from other renewable plays. We looked a lot at grid-scale storage, lots of different battery chemistries, some more exotic type things. We looked a lot at gas-to-liquids technologies. 
And then ultimately it came into the chemical sector and manufacturing. And it was kind of an interesting path. When was this, by the way, that you were doing this tour? So this would have been in 2012. Okay. So you're doing the tour and you found your way into chemicals. Yeah. And we had come across before that, and it's kind of well known now of what the big four buckets of greenhouse gas emissions are. And so you've obviously got electricity generation, you've got agriculture, you've got transportation, but then you also have manufacturing. Manufacturing is about 25% of global greenhouse gases. And this is just all the stuff that we make and use. And in many ways, it's, I'd say, the most hidden of those. And in many ways, it's the most challenging and kind of least gone after from an entrepreneurial perspective. So we kind of naturally were pulled in that direction. And we started looking at how chemicals were made. And what we found was most of the chemical industry is still based on combustion, or at least oxidation. And so we started going down various chemicals, and we kept putting it through those filters of, is there a way that you can do this cleaner, but still cost competitively with new technology? And it was on that search that we came across this thing called carbon black. We'd never heard of carbon black before. Most people haven't. But it's a really cool chemical that has been around for over 100 years. It's ubiquitous. It's in everything that's black and plastic or rubber. Its main use is in car tires. So a third of a car tire is carbon black. The other two thirds is rubber. It's what makes a car tire last long. It's what makes it strong. It helps with the rolling. Grows with GDP. So essentially, the more miles that are driven in trucks, cars, buses around the world each year, the more carbon black that is used. It's agnostic to whether those cars are powered by gasoline or diesel or batteries. It's also agnostic to whether the cars are driven by humans or by algorithms. Well, tires are tires are tires. Tires are tires. So it was like, if we're going to bet on one thing, it's that the world's going to keep rolling on tires. And we feel really good about that. So this really cool market, the challenge is, is that carbon black is made in this super dirty process where they partially burn heavy oil. They get about three tons of CO2 per ton of carbon black. And there's really no other way to do it. And who is they, by the way? I'm just curious geographically. Yeah, there's probably five major carbon black companies that operate around 100 plants all over the world. And then there's a long tail on this industry, particularly in China, where there's a lot of smaller companies that maybe have one or two plants. So I think in total, there's on the range of 200 of these plants around the world. And it's really anywhere the tires are made, carbon black is made. Has the process remained consistent for a long time or have there been innovations in recent years and decades? I'd say over the last 40 to 50 years, it's been very incremental. 99% of the world's carbon black is made in the exact same process, which is partially burning a heavy liquid hydrocarbon. And that ticks up a little bit each year with you know energy integration and just general efficiency, but nothing major like we're proposing to do in at least 40 or 50 years. And when you say dirty process, I guess, how does one assess how dirty the process is? Are there certain metrics? Is it percentage of emissions every year? Like, how do you define? Yeah, we looked primarily at intensity. And so how many emissions of the main categories per unit of that chemical? So that's greenhouse gases. But we also looked at SOx and NOx, emissions that sometimes don't get talked about as much in kind of the climate world, but really critical ones. And so when we looked at carbon black compared to lots of other chemicals, it's just intensive, a lot of CO2 for every unit of carbon black that you make. And then it also was an industry that had enough scale. There's a lot of carbon black made each year in in the tens of millions of tons of it. And one that's not going away anytime soon because of the wheel comment I just made a second ago. 
And this is kind of unrelated to carbon black and to monolith. But if you, let's just say, hypothetically, you were an investor, you were like Breakthrough Energy Ventures looking for different innovations that could help us decarbonize faster and looking for outsized areas that were particularly dirty and scaled. Is the the skill set to to calculate that, is that transferable from sector to sector or is it very domain specific? I think it takes a bit of a generalist because I think it's at that intersection of evaluating technology and how ready it is, evaluating markets, how durable they are, how much room there is in them for kind of outsized margin, and then finance. What's the path to create value? How do you piece that together over the various sources of capital? as you de-risk these type of businesses. So I think a kind of generalist who can mix that technical market finance and really put the pieces together, that's the skill set of the entrepreneur who can, I think, build, build the initial nascent kind of concepts around where you have the big impacts. I've never thought of this before, but one of the things I know is that BEV, they have a big internal team of scientists and modelers that are helping them do these calculations, but the same way that people talk about we need to price the externality, whether you believe that or not, we need to assess the externality. And it's a whole skill set that I know I don't have. And I bet a lot of people that invest in these companies don't have either. They know how to assess from a financial and market standpoint, but they have no idea how to assess when it comes to the emissions impact. Yeah. And that's a tricky one too, because at the first level, assessing emissions is fairly straightforward where you can say, draw a box around the plant or the vehicle and see what comes out. But that's not enough of the story to really understand where you're at. You really have to do a life cycle analysis. And that means going back. So I mean, electric cars are the best example of that, where an electric car's full life cycle emissions is all about where the electricity is generated. And so on a purely renewable grid, great. On a purely coal grid, not so great. And that same type of thing comes up in a lot of these areas when you're looking at emissions and impact is having that broader understanding and ability, I think, to analyze and then make good decisions based on it. Okay. So you identified this as an area that was, it had a dirty process and it was scaled. Did you have ideas at that point in terms of how one might clean it up? Yeah. So kind of in the background, when we were doing this, we came across this other theme, which was, I think it's probably one of the biggest energy events of our generation, which is the discovery and development of, of shale gas in North America. And so we were kind of at the same time watching natural gas over the previous years go from nine bucks to in the twos. We were doing a lot of conversations like you are, and we had one really good one or series of conversations with a guy named Peter Hebert at Lux Capital, who's just a dear friend of mine. He kind of said to us, if you can figure something to do with natural gas that make something essential, but does it cleanly, man, you're going to have a good business there. And so we were doing that in the background and we came across this carbon black, really dirty. And we just asked the question, can you make it out of natural gas? And the answer was you could in labs and a few people had tried to scale the process, but no one was really doing it at scale. And the key to making it clean is to doing it with electricity. So it's kind of electrification of this industry where Instead of getting the carbon out of oil by combustion, you're getting the carbon out of natural gas using electricity. And the thing that's really exciting there, and this was our eureka moment, was if you can do that, 
you've got a standalone economic cost competitive because natural gas is so abundant and low cost. But number two, because you're using electricity, you're cracking and you're pulling the carbon out of the natural gas as a product. And it's leaving you not with CO2, but it's leaving you with hydrogen, which when you talk about scale, man, that's a big scale chemical market that is, again, very pollution intensive in the way it's made now. So that was kind of our eureka moment was making carbon black using electricity from natural gas and getting a co-product of hydrogen. So one of the things I'm, I've learned after now having hundreds and hundreds of discussions with people around this topic of decarbonization is that a big piece to being able to assess how to think about these discussions is to understand people's perspectives. And so there's these certain kind of building blocks. So we just talked about the assessing how dirty is dirty from sector to sector. Another thing that I think is important to level set before we get too far in the discussion is just forget about carbon black and forget about monolith for a second. What is your view on natural gas and its role in the future? Yeah. So I've always been a fairly big believer in the kind of energies and all of the above industries. And I think in that all of the above, natural gas is going to play a really big role over the next, say, 50 years. I think anytime you can swap natural gas in electricity generation instead of coal, you've got a big win. And I think we're seeing the impacts of that over the last decade in the US. And I think we're going to start seeing some decent impact globally as a lot of these LNG projects have come online and are coming online and will ramp up. That's what I'd say broadly. I mean, in the context of monolith, natural gas is kind of an interesting one because we're not burning it. So it's not a case where now they're burning oil and we're going to burn natural gas and you get some slight win. In our case, because we're using electricity to crack natural gas into carbon and hydrogen, we're making no CO2 at our plant. We're just using the carbon that's stored in methane, which is 75% carbon, as the feedstock for our product. Is monolith solution dependent on natural gas? Not exclusively. So the technology is certainly capable of making our products with really any hydrocarbon. We're essentially mining the carbon out of the hydrocarbon. The nice thing with natural gas, or more kind of precisely methane, is that when you pull the carbon out, you've got four hydrogens. So you really maximize that hydrogen generation per unit of carbon. As you move up to longer chain hydrocarbons, you have less hydrogen associated with the carbon. So we can still make it, but we really like natural gas because of that big uplift you get on the hydrogen side. I definitely don't want to make this a whole natural gas episode. I know we're kind of here for for other reasons. I do think that this is just one small example that's illustrative of the complexity in trying to navigate how to effectively decarbonize because I think, I mean, I've heard you say that you can deliver carbon black in a way that's 90% less dirty than the traditional way. Did I get that right? Yeah, we're a lot like the electric car where we have essentially no direct emissions, but depending on where the electricity is generated, we're anywhere from, say, 40 to 100% if it's all renewable, cleaner. Uh huh. But if it's using natural gas, and then there's people that say, well, natural gas, we need to get off of natural gas as quickly as possible because of methane and because it actually does it while it emits substantially less than coal, it still emits substantially more than net zero, right? And it's, so it's like you can't properly factor in monolith without factoring in natural gas if you're truly looking at 
life cycle, it just makes you dizzy. And everything is like that. <laughs> it's a real challenge. Yeah, my wife always jokes that we're just coming out of the holidays. So lots of these family dinner table conversations. And she says, my famous line is, it's complicated. Because that's the reality of, I think, energy, climate, it's very complicated. And I always fall back on the second law of thermodynamics, which is there's an arrow. And you just described that directionality, that there is no perfect solution that's just purely circular, because we have this thing called entropy. And so we move through time and we move forward. And there's always going to be this entropy generated as we move forward in the path. And it's about, I think, being very thoughtful and and recognizing those externalities of different approaches and trying to find kind of the most nuanced, thoughtful solutions to the broad problem. So that was just a detour to get your perspective on natural gas, which was very helpful. And so you identified that using natural gas, you could make the process substantially cleaner. So what, or you had an idea for how you might be able to, why don't you go from there? What happened next? <laughs> yeah. So now we were two guys with a one page slide deck as opposed to just a blank piece of paper, but not much more than that. And so we and spent Silicon a lot of Valley, time. That's got to be good for at least like a 50 or a hundred million dollar valuation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No comment on that. <laughs> so the next step is we really want to understand where the technology was. Because from our time in solar and more broadly in energy, we knew that these technologies have a long path. And we didn't want to start if this was just an idea and there was a paper or two written on it. And so we really went out and I think the good news for us is we found that a lot of people had been working on trying to, it's called pyrolyze methane or crack it into its two components, carbon and hydrogen, for decades. And so what we were able to do is we were able to go around the world and we partnered with a number of entities, some universities, some kind of corporate R&D. We kind of rolled up the IP with the idea that Monolith was going to take this and commercialize it. And so that was a fun process where we're working with labs and corporate parts of companies. And then at the same time, we were working with the investment community to try and put those two pieces together at the same time of Monolith as the entity that's financing going to commercialize this. And the technology head start we're getting is coming from a couple decades of research at really strong institutions. Did either of you have any experience commercializing technology out of the lab? Not a ton. I mean, our experience at Ostra, the solar company, did involve a fair bit of that, where it was technology that was fairly nascent when we joined the company coming out of Australia. And it was invented by a professor there, David Mills. And we really did take that and got it kind of to the big leagues where we were building a 125 megawatt project in Rajasthan, India. So we had that corporate experience, but we never had kind of this early of, I'd say, true entrepreneurial experience with doing that full tech to market. Okay. So you were going around and rolling up this IP and you said you were also talking to the investment community. How did you think about the initial capital sources for the company? And and I guess from where you initially thought, what was the first step in that direction in terms of getting the company financed? Yeah. So, I mean, we just started with the few people we had in our collective Rolodex, which were all in San- on Sand Hill. So is the venture community. And we both went to Stanford and then we were both at this solar startup. So we had a few connections. And it was a lot like your process where you talk to one person and and they say, look, good idea, like you guys, but we're not investing in this space, but we'll make an introduction. And that went on for a time. And eventually we found ourselves at General Catalyst. And it was really, this is a kind of a fun story that was quintessential to our founding. We're pitching 
And we got about two minutes in and the partner there said, I like the space. You guys seem credible, but I don't know anything about Carbon Black and you two clearly don't know anything about Carbon Black. So I'm going to stop you right here. I happen to know the former president of the biggest Carbon Black company in the world, Cabot, a guy named Bill Brady. I'll get a call set up with you guys. We'll find out what Bill thinks about this opportunity. Who I saw in my prep for this is a Boston guy like me. He's a Boston guy. Yeah. So this is where we take a trip to Boston. So we get the call set up two days later and my partner Pete and I, it was the evening before the call. It was the next morning. We were sitting together, we're prepping and we just kind of came to the realization that whatever Bill thought about this idea was going to be 100% deterministic on whether this was a go or not, because he just knows so much about the business. Whether General Catalyst was a go or whether the company was a go? I think for us, it was broader than just GC. I think it was the company. (laughs) Because we kind of thought, look, if a guy that ran the biggest car and black company for two decades says thumbs down, that's probably a strong enough signal for us to kind of move to the next idea. So we're sitting there and we eventually were like, we shouldn't do a phone call. We got to get in front of this guy. And so I think it was 7 p.m. We got on our computers, found a red-eye flight, and flew to Boston. And so we arrived in Boston. That level of hustle, though, is, I mean, to you, and I kind of think similarly, it's just like muscle memory. It's just what you do because it's just Darwinism. Like the odds are so stacked against you. You just need to do what it takes to make it happen. But it's amazing how many founders just don't have that for whatever reason. So the fact like that one little anecdote there to me is just that's just like from pattern recognition standpoint, it's like, okay, this guy's for real. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah. It was one of those where we hadn't put years, but we'd had put months into this into this idea. And we weren't going to have another opportunity to get in front of someone that knows this much about it. So so we flew out. We weren't able to get in touch with him or or his assistant beforehand. So at the time of the call, we just found his office and showed up. And he was gracious enough to let us come in. And then we used another classic entrepreneur's technique, which is we had half an hour scheduled, but we just didn't leave for three hours and just kept the conversation going. So after that, Bill really liked the idea and he joined us as a third founder. And he's been involved with the company ever since on our board and was executive chairman for a number of years, essentially running it. Just a great friend, mentor. So yeah, so that was kind of how it got started was once Bill gave the thumbs up. So did you end up raising money from General Catalyst? So no. (laughs) So one more twist. So Bill gave the thumbs up. That gave us a lot of confidence. Didn't work out with General Catalyst on both sides. And we found ourselves being pulled away from Silicon Valley at the same time to, I would say, more traditional energy investors. And I hadn't appreciated this part of the energy market is that Most people think of traditional energy like big oil and big gas as the only people doing stuff are the super majors, the Exxons and Shells of the world. But there's this huge system there of entrepreneurship. And there's all of this financing, mostly private equity, for what are essentially startups in that space. And they put tons of capital at work. And so we kind of found ourselves being drawn over there. And that's where we ultimately ended up was with two private equity groups, one out of New York called Warburg Pincus and one out of Canada, uh, Calgary called Azimuth Capital Management. And they both had decades of investing kind of big equity into early stage exploration, development, midstream, traditional oil and gas companies. And they liked the risk, kind of liked the opportunity and, and went with them. And so I guess looking at this type of business, because I know for a number of 
listeners out there that are trying to find opportunities where they can build companies that can be big, profitable companies, but also have a big impact on climate change. So there is there's the physical infrastructure as it relates to building plants. What about things like technical risk? I mean, how would the project finance world think about this? How would the equity markets think about this? It feels like there's kind of this weird middle ground where you kind of fit neither. So, I mean, how do you guys look relative to relative to those sectors? And, and is there, am I imagining that there's this gap or is it real? No, it's real. It's real. And we're just kind of crossing that gap right now. So to date, we're 100% corporate equity. We've raised a lot of capital, but it's all been on the equity side. And that's got us through our demonstration and now our first commercial plant. But our next commercial plant, we want to kind of move to that more traditional, let's say, project finance. And there's a bit of a gap where the real classic big bank project finance, I would say for our third or fourth plant, great fit. For our second plant, that's the tricky one. And so we're navigating that space right now. I mean, I do believe that there's a structure for every stage of a company. And I think we have noticed over the last couple of years that there are more and more people who are really looking to invest large amounts of capital if it has an ESG angle, like ours does, on top of a great business. So we're just navigating that right now of how do we enter the debt markets? What does that look like? How do we kind of move down the equity from just pure corporate equity to perhaps asset level equity? And it's not a perfectly charted course yet. I think solar and wind did a nice job of figuring out how to make that transition. So we do have a little bit of kind of people to follow in that respect. But of course, ours is also a little bit different. And so it's going to be fun navigating that over the next couple of years. Yeah, but you're already in a place where you have hundreds of millions in financing into the business. Let's say the next company with similar attributes to you, a couple of co-founders coming out of Psychotron Road or out of university, should they take their first hundreds of millions in equity financing as well? How should they think about staging, phasing? I guess what I'm getting at, are you guys the exception or... Should your approach be more broadly adopted amongst the hard tech Silicon Valley crowd? I think it's a really good model. I mean, I'm like N equals one (laughs) in experience here. But I think it's a really good model, particularly because it's been so successfully applied to big capital hard tech problems in the traditional energy space. And I think that many of the same challenges technically financially, execution-wise, team-building-wise that applies there will apply to kind of monolith and other monolith-like companies that are biting off much of the same challenge, just adding that more broad externality of doing it in a more sustainable way. So a couple of things that you have to get comfortable with, and it takes a lot of trust, is when you go down the financing path that we did, as founders of the company, you give a lot up early. And you do that for the trade-off of having partners who are going to have long time horizon, ability to continue to fund the business and get it to scale. And so you just got to get comfortable with that, with having most of your incentive be back-end weighted, be willing to put a decade plus into the opportunity and trust that you've found good shareholders who are going to kind of share that vision and support you along the way. 
just stop me if you don't want to go down this path, but you mentioned when we were prepping that the initial capital into the business wasn't paid all at once. Was that paid out in tranches? How does that work? Yeah, it was in tranches. It was close to what's called an equity line of credit structure, which is used a lot in this traditional energy investing space. And so it was kind of as we achieve certain milestones, first, almost entirely technical, and then moving into market, and then moving into, I would say, execution, capital costs, things like that. As we achieve those, then more money would flow into the business. The nice thing with the structure is that as that more money flowed into the business, at each round or each investment, we weren't kind of having the full new negotiation of what the value of the business is, how much every party has economic interest, governance, et cetera, et cetera. And so it, it let us move, I would say, much faster and without as much diversion as we went through those different stages. And then the product itself, it was really interesting, your point about how one of the criteria is that it needs to be market competitive on its own two feet. And so I guess, how do you think about that in practice? And then with Monolith, where do you sit today versus where would you like to get in the future? And then how much of that do you need to lead with when you first enter the market or give yourself the room to kind of grow over time? I, I mean, I'm not asking it in a very succinct way, but what I'm trying to ask is just, how do you think about that? Yeah. So, yeah. so why don't I start with Monolith and then I can maybe extend it a little bit. So the cool thing with Carbon Black is it's got some commodity-like features to it, but then it also has some very, I would say, product-like features to it. And I'll give a couple examples. So Carbon Black goes into a lot of different things. It goes into some things that I would say are very high tech. Every battery has a certain percentage of Carbon Black in it that's added as a conductive additive. And in that market, it's all about performance. So it's all about the purity of your Carbon Black. It's about its conductivity, its morphology. So those markets, it's not as much about your competitiveness on the cost side, and it's much more about a value. Can you generate more value in the end application because of the technical performance of your product? And so we have a number of those where when you start with natural gas, instead of kind of the bottom of the barrel from the refinery, you have these huge purity advantages because of the electric nature of our process. You get some interesting conductivity properties with the material itself. So we really like going after some of those, I would say, non-big commodity-like markets early, both because they bring more value. They're also kind of a little bit smaller in scale. And so that's kind of where we're starting. And then- And what are some examples of those markets? Batteries is one. That's a little bit of a nuance because there's a, a longer adoption cycle. Another really interesting one, it's not the sexiest one in the world, but it's cool from these areas, is Carbon Black goes into things that touch food. So think of like a plastic fork or a TV dinner tray. If it's black, it has Carbon Black in it. And the Carbon Black is actually regulated by the FDA. It needs to have a certain low level of impurities in it. And we do really well there because of our super pure feedstock. And so that's an interesting market that's fairly fast adoption, but also can bring some value because of that purity advantage. Another one are the metal carbides. That's an interesting one. So take something like tungsten carbide. Tungsten carbide is used in cutting tools and things like that. It's 94% tungsten, 6% carbon. And so they got to get the carbon from somewhere and it's very sensitive to the purity. And so that's an area where they do use carbon black. And we have, again, that purity advantage. So there's a couple examples. 
And then there's quite a few others in, I'd say, a long tail of these, what are called specialty applications of carbon black. But areas where with our purity, with some aspects of our technology, we can bring more value, give us a nice entry into the market. Is that with a premium price? Yeah, most of those markets have, I would say, more of a value pricing structure than just purely a competitive pricing structure. Now, as you move into the broader, bigger markets like tire, you start to get the huge volume, which is great, but it's also a longer road. Those markets, I mean, anything in auto takes three to five years to qualify. And so we're working with most of the major tire customers in qualifying our materials in their application, but that's a longer road. It's you know a different balance between kind of volume value, competitiveness and pricing structure. And so I think if I generalize this, I think going to market in these technology sectors, if you can find more of a premium place to start where you have an advantage and you can really deliver value to a small set of customers, then that lets you get your feet under you, lets you build volume, lets you build the company required to be able to supply those customers every hour of every day and then scale over time. Is your counsel for entrepreneurs that are trying to think about those initial markets, should they even factor in things like impact or should they just focus on getting a strong beachhead somewhere and then find the impact later on? Yeah. I mean, I think you need to have value creation for your customer as just a true north. I had a mentor in grad school. His name was Steve Blank. He's a pretty famous entrepreneur in Silicon Valley. And he said to me, he goes, unless you can see the eyeballs of your customer dilate when you're pitching them, and that's how excited they are about the product, you haven't really found your product market fit yet. And so that stuck with me that you've got to deliver value to customers. That's the fundamental of a business. And that needs to come first and foremost. Now, as it relates to scale and impact, you can also have that running in the background in the way you're thinking about it. How does this bridge? And I'll give you a really cool example in Carbon Black where about 70% of Carbon Black is used in tires. 20% of Carbon Black is used in what's called industrial rubber. So that's things like belts and hoses. And many of the same companies do both of those. The nice thing with some of the belts and hoses is instead of a five-year adoption cycle, it's more like months to a single digit year. You can have a case there where you really deliver for customers in that first market with the view of that's a really nice bridge to an ultimate market. I mean, I think Tesla is probably the classic example of a company that's done this, done this quite well. But yeah, I, th- I think you got to start with value to the customer. How important is the clean story to your customers? It's been pretty amazing, I would say, over the past three years, even, how much that has changed and how much it's accelerated. So I think the auto sector in general, and when you go to the tire sector, which is supplying the the car companies, they have stated goals, in many cases, very aggressive. And they're also looking quite far into the future. So one of the big tire customers wants 80% of the tire to come from an eco-friendly source by 2050. I heard the chief procurement officer of this company speaking a couple months ago, and, and she said, and 2050 is just around the corner. So they have long time horizons, and they realize that these things are going to, they're going to have to be acting now if they want to achieve these 
I'd say, aggressive goals even a few decades in the future. Are those goals being mandated upon them or what's in it for them to declare these goals? I don't know the full story there. I mean, we do see more coming out of Europe. So I don't know how much is related to regulations or perhaps a sense of coming regulation. It's certainly being driven by the auto companies. I think you see that pretty broadly, obviously not just in their supply chains, but also in technology and how they're looking at fueling vehicles in the future. I would speculate it's probably a combo of market forces and perhaps a view of potential policy that's coming down the pike. And what about for your business? How much do you think about regulation, if at all, and policy? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, the number one thing on regulation is that because of our very low emission profile, we can actually build plants. We are nearing completion of our first commercial plant, and that'll be the first new carbon black plant permitted and built in the United States in three decades. And it's not because the market's shrinking. The market's been growing. It continues to grow and demand for carbon black continues to grow. It's because the existing technology can't get a permit. It's actually going the other way. In the past three years, the five companies that run 17 carbon black plants in the U.S. have all signed consent decrees with the EPA, agreeing that they violated the Clean Air Act and committing to putting SOX and NOx scrubbers on their plants. Pretty big capital investments. So that's number one for us is while others are having to invest capital just to keep their plants running, we're building new plants and getting them permitted here in the U.S. And then I think second and more long term, I do think over time people are going to price in more externalities. I think it's just natural. We saw it happen with things like waste into water used to just dump and then it got regulated. And I think over time that'll happen with the atmosphere. And so we think about it just that let's say, long-term structural positioning, a supplier of choice to our customers, and then ability to build new capacity for a growing market. And if anybody from the government's listening or elected officials or people from advocacy groups that are pushing for one policy or another, or even just voters that are listening to the show, if we want more of this kind of clean innovation to flourish and to swap out the dirty stuff faster what kind of air cover can we be providing from a policy standpoint for companies like you guys? To be honest, I don't spend a ton of time thinking about the policy side. So for us, it's but that, always- But that's a tell in itself though. It's like, if you want to know how important policy is to someone's business, then it's like, how much time are they laying sleepless thinking about it? And if you're not, then that kind of, I think that's illustrative that maybe you're more focused on market forces, which is great if you can be in that position. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think for us, that was that was really important at our founding, that we were truly going to be standalone and we're going to be able to weather various political environments because we knew it was going to take a long time to build this business and it was going to be harder than we could imagine, which it has been, that you need to have some durability to both commodity cycles with you know prices of things going up and down and, and also policy cycles. So yeah, that's not a great answer, but that's that's what I have on that topic. Well, let me ask you a different one then. If you weren't building Monolith and you and your co-founder were on the same hunt to go find a market that had those criteria, are there hundreds of others, dozens of others, a handful of others, or none that are clear to you are opportunities today? Opportunities from the market forces and profitability standpoint and from the impact standpoint. Oh, I think they're out there. I mean, I think there's a lot out there. I think the fact that my co-founder Pete and I, there's nothing exceptional about us. We're kind of two pretty average people who took this journey together and found 
one in a fairly short period of time. I think that there's a lot of these opportunities out there. And as people care more about that, both continuing to produce the energy and the things that drive our economy and society forward, but in a way that has less kind of negative consequence on the environment, man, it's a great time to be an entrepreneur (laughs) because I think there's going to be a ton of opportunities out there to do that. So what are one or two that you think are exciting that you'd be intrigued to pursue if you weren't booked? (laughs) Let's see, just off the cuff. I mean, I think this whole manufacturing sector is fascinating and the list is very long of the things that we produce and use. One that Monolith is looking at quite intensely is what do we do with our hydrogen? So for every atom of carbon that we separate, there's four atoms of hydrogen that are separated from the methane molecule. And that can go into all types of things. Isn't Lincoln going to swap out a coal plant for a hydrogen plant using your hydrogen? Did I read that? That's the plan for the first plant is that we're going to do kind of the simplest thing is burn the hydrogen, which generates, you know, water vapor, it burns very cleanly. And then the heat liberated to fuel an existing coal-fired power plant. So they'll swap the coal out, swap the hydrogen in. It's nice because it's low capital cost, it's low technical risk. But then thinking longer term, right now, the world generates lots of hydrogen. It's all from what's called steam methane reforming, or mostly, which has a lot of CO2 intensity. And so there's lots of areas to, I'd say, create additional value and, and go after an additional target at least for us on that hydrogen side. And, and it's interesting market. So one, for example, is ammonia. Ammonia is a really cool market. Half of the hydrogen that the world makes right now turn into ammonia. And ammonia is you know responsible for feeding two to three billion people on the planet. It's kind of the mother of all fertilizers. But on the other side, just ammonia production is responsible for about 1% of global greenhouse gases. So that's kind of a cool one that gets my brain going of, okay, how do we fit into that? How could we play in that space? So that's a cool one. Outside of Monolith, I mean, steel's fascinating, concrete's fascinating. On the materials side, those are both big, big impacts. And we also need them. We're not going to live in a world that we don't use steel and concrete, at least not in the next couple of centuries, I don't think. So there's some other ones. And then the egg one is fascinating. There's going to be so many great companies to build on the egg side. How do we maximize productivity, but minimize emissions. And that one has really kind of fun life cycles to think through of what's actually happening with carbon that's being pulled out of the environment, uh, nitrogen emissions, CH4 emissions, how that all lines up, where technology plays in it. I think there's a lot of opportunity for smart people to think of ideas in that in that ag space. And when you're looking at these opportunities, I guess one of the confusing things for me is that I see a lot of Silicon Valley types who are trying to find opportunities that are having trouble. These tend to be people that come from more software backgrounds. And then there's these opportunities that are happening, but they tend to look a lot different in terms of longer time horizons and more infrastructure costs and more technical risk and things like that. So I guess what types of founders are the best founders to go out and seek these opportunities? And what are the right capital providers that they should be cozying up to as they're navigating that journey? I mean, you've had a number of what I think are great entrepreneurs on on your show already. I, I mean, 
Gene at SELA is a dear friend of mine. His background of being an engineer and then spending some time at Tesla and and then going back and doing material science and and then getting into it. That's a cool one. Another friend of mine, Kurt House, similar background, engineering science, and then some startup experience. Is that Cobalt? That's Cobalt, yep. Yep. Yeah, no, I'd love to have him on the show. Yeah, he'd be great. He'd be great. Another one, Shannon, she's running Adagen. They've, they've come up with a high-efficiency new engine, kind of similar. She's engineer as well. Gene mentioned her as well. Yeah, <laughs> she's another one that sounds really good. But there's not a lot of you. And I think that's my point is that from my standpoint, our arteries are clogged in terms of the, the innovation ecosystem. But is that how you're feeling or do you feel like it's firing on all cylinders? I mean, I don't think we're there yet when you look at Silicon Valley and just the machine that there is for entrepreneurship on the software side, we're not there on energy and sustainability. But I think for, I don't know the exact number, but for everyone that goes through CompSci at Stanford, there's probably one that goes through electrical or mechanical or chemical engineering. And of course, this isn't just limited to Stanford. This is kind of across all the universities. I think the intellectual horsepower is out there. I think the financing one is a little bit more constrained, where I think after that first rush into clean tech by Silicon Valley and the uh, not such great returns that were had, a lot of people drew back. But I am really excited about this set of investors who have traditionally invested in in oil and gas now turning their sights to more sustainable type investments. And I think that's going to be the narrative over the next 10 years is some of these big pools of capital who have been investing in energy and some of the teams that they've invested in going after these type of hard tech, capital intensive, longer run, but huge business opportunities. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I'm trying to piece together is a clearer worldview around the, it seems like for innovation that puts climate and decarbonization at the center of the bullseye. You have stuff that's like idealist, but doesn't have any scale, and that isn't going to matter. And then you have stuff that matters financially, but it's just got like a little greenish tint and doesn't really matter. But it's like the stuff that you guys are doing, for example, that kind of marries the two as equal citizens, right? That's the stuff that's most interesting to me, but it does require a different type of kind of life cycle, innovation life cycle and staging and capital types. and But it's like, what is that right model to get that flywheel cranking? I don't have a clear view today. My sense is that it's not just educating Silicon Valley, that it's that there needs to be some tuning. And it's not just, I mean, you can look at Breakthrough Energy Ventures as a comp, but I, I don't know how realistic it is because they don't have any institutional LPs. And so if you want the institutional capital to flow at scale, which is what you need if you really want to get stuff done, then the BEV model isn't necessarily going to fly. And so what is it? I don't know, but I'm really interested to to tease that out. Yeah. And I think the next decade is going to be fascinating for that. I'm excited because the good thing is that there's kind of a number of trampolines out there. I mean, Breakthrough is a good one. Uh, You're starting to see some of the big private equity folks put money into these sectors. Anyone else that I should be looking at besides the two that are working with you? Are there others that come to mind that are really leaning into these areas? I mean, there's a couple of new ones. There's a really new fund called Imperative Science Ventures. That's a fun one. I can put you in contact with them. Another cool one, if you have the opportunity, you should have my co-founder on because he's actually left Monolith a couple of years ago, and he now works for 
one of our investors and he's a partner there and doing precisely this, trying to figure out what the model is for investment in monolith-like opportunities. Oh man, I, those are the people I want. I want to talk to the entrepreneurs that have broken through. I want to talk to the different layers of the capital stack that are trying to figure it out. And I want to talk to the people that are more focused on the system. So the RPEs or the, the DOEs or policymakers or the big NGOs that are trying to make stuff happen in these areas or the incubators. But it, yeah, if there are people in that kind of big finance that are trying to figure this out on the front lines, those are very interesting for me. Bringing it back around to Monolith. So what does success look like at end state? 10 years out, 25 years out, however far out you think, what have you done? We're actually really in the fun part of the company now where we're growing. And so we've got our first commercial plant coming online in a few months. And then we've set up our site here. It's in Nebraska, our first one. We've set up the site to be able to expand that plant as much as 50x by just adding additional units. So we've kind of reached the full scale of the technology where now that technology risk will be essentially mitigated and you just build additional modules. What's cool is that the global market requires about 50 of those units to be built every year just to keep up with demand. So we have so much building to do, not even to displace the existing incumbents, but to just keep up with the global demand because every year there's more people who drive more miles. So that's exciting is to really start scaling this business, both on the production side and then also on the customer side. It's also going to be really exciting to move in and start moving up the value chain on the hydrogen side of the business. I mean, we have so much potential to make a huge impact there. And this doesn't require a whole new hydrogen economy. This is just talking about all of the hydrogen that's currently produced and used to make the ammonia the world needs and, and methanol and you know oil refining, other things like that. So that's really exciting that we'll take some steps, I think, over the next few years into additional markets for hydrogen and additional value creation. I'm personally really excited about just building the company. We went from about 50 to 100 employees this year, and that was really exciting. And we'll kind of continue a pretty rapid trajectory of building the company. It's rewarding for me because I've been able to now pull a really strong executive team together, and I just learned so much from them. And they've run much bigger companies than Monolith is. And that's been really rewarding to me personally. And then I think finally, just starting to really see that big impact environmentally, where as we scale our production, the numbers start to add up and you start doing the math on how many tons of CO2 kind of we're preventing from going into the atmosphere. And that's obviously super motivating because that was one of the key things that started this all was wanting to have a big impact there. If you could change one thing structurally that would help accelerate your progress, I don't mean structurally within Monolith, but structurally in the world, what would it be? That you could build capital projects faster. <laughs> it might be impossible, but it's a patience game, this one, when you're building these really capital intensive projects, they just take so much time. And I say that jokingly, it just takes time. And I think there's things you can do around the edges, but the I think biggest thing there is making sure that you've got aligned shareholders and, and you've got kind of patience to be able to get through long kind of cycles. And two questions I ask every guest. One is just if you had $100 billion and you could put it towards anything to maximize its impact in this decarbonization transition, where would you put it? How would you allocate it? I think I would probably put it into education and not so much education on this issue, but when I think back to, to my arc, I was just so fortunate to have so many great teachers 
mean, starting with my parents and then my high school math and physics teachers and some of my university professors. And I kind of have come to the realization that education is less or maybe a great teacher is less that they transfer the knowledge to you and more that they transfer the passion to you in some visceral way. And I just think of like, if we could put a hundred billion dollars and somehow have the next generation or two really inspired to kind of build the companies that we're going to need and the technology that we're going to need to power our economy and do it more sustainably. I think that's our best shot. And what type of teaching or training do you think that they need? So one thing that I think it could be replicated quite broadly is I did my undergrad at great university up in Canada where I grew up, learned all the fundamentals of engineering probably as well as I could have anywhere. And then I came to Stanford for my grad studies. And I would say there was not much difference in the content, but then you started getting this entrepreneurship layer to Stanford and a few classes that really got me excited and maybe opened my eyes that you can actually like build a company, a technology company with the skills you have and this ecosystem around you. And I think Stanford probably does it better than anywhere else figuring out how you really inspire students, whether it's in software or in ME or EE to do that. And, and there's no reason that couldn't be applied to literally every university. I think innovation doesn't need to just be in that kind of hundred mile stretch in Silicon Valley. It can be a lot of other places. So that would be cool to figure out how you, how you scale what's being achieved there more broadly And then I think after that, you start working down. And how do you move that earlier in kids' educational experience? I think so much of entrepreneurship is just that belief that you can actually just go and do it. And you've obviously done it where there's something that from all of your time till that point has made you believe, I'm just going to go start this company. And that's really powerful. and, And I think it probably starts earlier than most people realize. And so University is a good place to start, but I'd move earlier if possible as well. My wife calls it ego. I call it demons. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. Yeah, maybe it's some of both. And then our last question is just for anyone listening that wants to help and, you know, is concerned about this problem, not sure where to sink their teeth in, what advice do you have for them? And you can take that two ways. You could give general advice to anybody listening, or if you want to actually segment it by if you're an aspiring founder, or if you just like are concerned about the problem and not looking to give up your day job. I think it's quite individual and it's about finding out where kind of your skills align with where the opportunities are. And so I think you're demonstrating a really good model. It's similar to the path that that Pete and I went through of you try to find and talk to as many people as you can from as many different angles and you start to find threads and you start to pull on them and eventually you navigate your way to that intersection between your skills and where the opportunity lies in this. And so I don't think there's shortcuts and I would say to your listeners that, I mean, you're the example of it. So follow in those footsteps. It, it doesn't have to be public. It can, it can be in private, but there's nothing like having the hundred conversations with people in, in your network. And it's always amazing how open the world is to just having coffee and having kind of good conversations on topics like this. 
And I said last question, but I do have one more question, if if that's okay, which is just that, I mean, clearly you're an optimist on Monolith, and I think that's great. And from our discussion so far, I am too. And I think it sounds important for the fight, but are you an optimist on us as a species solving this problem? How bad are things going to get? Like, are we just shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, it, clearly a huge challenge. I'm no enough to be dangerous, so I'll, I'll be careful here because I'm not super deep in all of the models of what sea level rise is going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. But I am pretty confident of this. And whoever is, by the way, doesn't know anything about carbon black. I can pretty much guarantee it. So (laughs) it takes all kinds. That's right. That's right. (laughs) Look, I don't think the challenge is resources. I really do think the challenge is technology. And I think we have a pretty huge abundance of energy and resources to sustain our development. And there's a lot of developing to be done still, right? There's still a huge part of the world that is still a long ways from even being able to have a conversation like this because they're more worried about basic needs. So we got a lot of work to still do there on a lot of the world coming up that curve, which is going to be more energy intensive. But I don't think it's a resource issue. I mean, we've got so much resource. I think it's a technology issue. And because of that, I'm super optimistic because just as a species, we've been so resilient and so innovative at being able to solve what our at one point, seemingly impossible problems through technology. And I don't think this will be different. So I'm optimistic that we're going to get there, but it's also going to take time, probably measured closer to century time scale than decades. Anything that I didn't ask that I should have or any parting words for listeners? No, I mean, just thank you so much for the opportunity to talk. You're doing great work and really appreciate it. Well, you as well. And people like you and Gene and Edigen and Cobalt. And I really, I want to start finding the examples of companies that are hitting that sweet spot of the strong business and strong impact and that have broken out of the, across the chasm where they're starting to have some real momentum and success. And I want to start gathering those leaders and building kind of a brain trust to start figuring out how to help a thousand flowers bloom. And that's going to take me a timescale that doesn't look like weeks or maybe even months, right? But you'll hear more on that topic, mostly because I think you're an example that I I would like to see others follow. So thank you for your work. Awesome. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, Co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.